0: everyone. Uh, We are going to today finish our very short sermon series on the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. And last week we looked at Habakkuk 1 and 2. It's only three chapters in Habakkuk. We looked at the first two chapters and we saw what it means to live by faith in troubling times. And today we're going to look at Habakkuk 3 to consider how we can rejoice in troubling times, rejoicing in God in troubling times. Now, As we've said, the book of Habakkuk is describing a world full of troubling times. Habakkuk sees that, in many ways like us, his country is going to experience crop failure, food shortages, economic collapse, and international turmoil. He knows that many people around him uh, may potentially die, that some will be sent away into exile, which is really a much worse version of social distancing, being kept away from everything you used to know and the people that you love and care about, that his society is going to be reshaped for a very long time. And so his future feels unknown and confusing to him. He knows that his nation will never be the same after this. Just like we know, we're wrestling with um, huge world changes all around us because of this COVID-19 pandemic. How can we face these troubling times with faith? enjoy. That's been the question shaping our time in Habakkuk because that's the question that shapes Habakkuk's prayers to God. Habakkuk is really like Habakkuk's prayer journal. We are seeing him wrestle with God with his confusions, bringing his challenges to God, his fears and his doubts. But by the end, we see that Habakkuk is a transformed person, that his prayers of complaint about how God is running the world give way, gives way in the end to a psalm of praise that even in his greatest fears he has found faith and even in his worst troubles he has found joy. This is one of the great things about the Bible. One of the great comforts to us is that even the mighty prophets of the Old Testament, even the apostles in the New Testament are people just like us, subject to the same fears and failings, the same trials and troubles. They may have a special calling to be a prophet or to be an apostle, and yet they are men just like we are, who go through ups and downs, uh, who experience terrible struggles and trials and difficulties and troubles. By God's grace, all this is recorded in the Bible for us. Habakkuk tells us in chapter 3, verse 16, that he was shaking like a leaf because of his fear about his troubling times. Habakkuk 3, verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Habakkuk looks at the world around him and he's shaking like a leaf. He said, His legs are trembling, like they're about to collapse beneath him. Decay crept into my bones. He started to feel sick over the stress that he sees or feels as he looks out at what he sees going on in his world. The great apostle Paul in the New Testament went through something similar. I often think of Paul as this incredibly brave, um, larger-than-life character, but Paul doesn't want us to see him as a stoic John Wayne in a Western film or Dwayne the Rock Johnson who uh, heroically overcomes every possible thing around him in order to save the day. Paul, the apostle, says, no, not even close, Uh He humbly expresses his weaknesses. Nowhere does he do this more than in 2 Corinthians. And he looks at his life and describes how he's experiencing terribly troubling times. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, We are troubled on every side. Every side of my life is in terrible trouble. In 2 Corinthians 7, a few chapters later, he goes further and says, Our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted and troubled at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Affliction, fighting, that conflict all around him. It's like the world feels against him and internally fear is coming up within him. Fighting without, fear within, troubled on every side. And yet Paul says something surprising throughout 2 Corinthians. Despite his circumstances, he says, we do not lose heart. Twice he says that in chapter 4. We do not lose heart. Why? He goes on not to to brag about his strong, his strength, his toughness, his ability to overcome. Instead, he says, we keep going to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Belongs to God, not to us. In all our affliction, all of our troubles, he says, I'm overflowing with joy. I am filled with comfort for for God who comforts the downcast comforted us. In all your troubles and all your fears, are you overflowing with joy? Paul and Habakkuk say the same thing, essentially. In all my troubles, I'm overflowing with joy. Habakkuk says this in the rest of chapter 3, the very last verses. If in verse 16 he said he's shaking like a leaf, he's trembling with fear, he feels sick out of stress, his legs feel like they're going to collapse because of how fearful he is about his current circumstances. In verse 17, he says, It gets worse. Though the fig tree doesn't bud and there's no, there are no grapes on the vine, so the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, there's no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights so like the Apostle Paul, who says, the surpassing power is not from us, but from God. Habakkuk says the same. Even though the crops will fail, there's gonna be economic failure and disaster. He's sick with fear. He yet says, I rejoice in the Lord. I take joy in God, my savior. And in, in uh, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, which is to say, sure-footed. Deer can run sure-footedly over everything. And so he's, he's saying that God is providing salvation for him. There's this strong belief, strong reality, the great reality in the Bible is that those who feel caught between fear and faith, the good news that God shows Habakkuk and Paul and us is that fear and faith are not utterly opposed. But faith doesn't stop and stay stuck in fear. These guys were shaking like a leaf, recognizing troubles all around them, and yet they took their complaints to God, they they walked with God, and they saw that the power to get through, the strength wasn't from them, but from God. So the fact that the Bible um, clearly tells us about men like Habakkuk and Paul shows us that God knows us, he understands us, He's aware of our fears. He wants to show us how our faith can lead us to overflowing with joy even inside our troubles within them. So so what is this joy and how do we get it? How do we stand up to our fears, even find joy in troubling times when we are filled with fear? How can we live by faith to such an extent that our that in our troubles we are overflowing with joy? That even if things go from bad to worse, we will still find joy. I want to start uh, in this passage by thinking about what our joy is not, so that we can better understand what our joy is and then how to get it. So what joy in troubling times is not? I think there's two ways both ancient and modern people uh, go about our troubling times. The first way is to grin and bear it there's many ways to describe this, but at its root, we're pretending, right? We're pretending that everything's okay. In troubling times or in personal pain or facing great struggle, we put on a good face and we act happy. We might act like nothing's wrong. It's it's not so bad. You know, I'm okay. It's fine. We grin and bear it. We put on a happy face. But this clearly isn't what the Bible means by rejoicing in tribulation, by rejoicing in our troubles, that we can overflow even when overwhelmed. With troubles. We can overflow with joy even when overwhelmed by troubles. Why? Well, the reason why is because that's not real joy. To put on a happy face is pretending, which means that inside it's anger or frustration or fear that's actually our real state. We're just putting on a, a pretend face, like a mask that we're hiding behind. And we're saying, look, uh, it's actually okay, but inside we're not okay and we won't admit it. And, and so it's certainly... The joy that God is describing in scripture, the joy that Habakkuk is talking about, that he'll rejoice in God even if things go from bad to worse, is not pretending that things aren't going from bad to worse. He doesn't just grin and bear it. We've seen him actually complain openly to God in chapters one and two. He's not hiding from these troubles or pretending. But instead of putting on a happy face, he's actually standing before the face of God crying out crying out about his unhappiness, crying out about his lack of joy. But in the process of doing that, he actually discovers the way to joy. So it's not grinning and bearing it. But the second thing and the second way or strategy that we might use to face our troubles is to grit. Use grit to break through it. We're not grinning and bearing it. We use grit to try to break through our struggles. And this is different than grinning and bearing it. Because if grinning and bearing it says, well, I... Uh, It's not so bad. Grit doesn't say it's not so bad. Grit says it's terrible, but I'm going to get through it. Uh, Grit, there's a great book Angela Duckworth wrote called Grit back in 2016, and she talks about how grit is this quality of personal power, power, passion, and perseverance. And so you you actually want to take on hard things because you know that you grow through them. And she's right. Everybody needs this, including Christians if you want to be successful in life, everyone needs some grit. You have to be able to endure challenges and find your way through hardship. But the question is that, is that actually the response or the the answer to all things, to all troubles? It's very different to selectively take on a difficult sport or instrument or schooling in order to grow through it, to become a a more well-rounded, better person. What about when you you, these are hardships you didn't ask for and you don't accept. Or you find it hard to accept. For example, our nation is continuing to struggle in this pandemic as more Americans have now died from COVID-19 than did in the Vietnam War. We are um, globally 1 million case, more than one million cases of this pandemic, right? Unemployment has exceeded 30 million people. And so can you honestly, could any of us honestly say, yes, by my own power, perseverance, and passion, I am able to answer these troubles that are so globally, medically, scientifically, socially, and economically big. If I just grit, get some grit, bear through it, a bust through this problem, it'll all be okay. You know, just a few days ago, the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the United States, Jerome Powell, warned Congress that this growing economic crisis is only getting worse, and he urged our policymakers to help more Americans because 40% of households where people make $40,000 or less lost a job. Huge number of people who already maybe didn't make as much as some others already lost their jobs. That means he says that this pandemic is now causing an economic economic problem that is at a level of pain that's hard to capture in words. The Atlantic magazine reported that parents are starting to experience a deep sense of crisis. They said, imagine for a moment that the future is going to be even more stressful than the present. How do you prepare a child for such an uncertain time? As we've been talking a lot about grit in schools and in our economy, people are recognizing, I'm not sure that's going to be enough for such an uncertain time. Reuters reported that the president acknowledged recently that COVID-19 could kill 100,000 people in the U.S., which is far higher than he previously forecast. What happens when you realize things could really truly go from bad to worse, and they're not going to get better anytime soon? Is just powering through the answer? Is is drumming up enough grit going to work? Can we really face our struggles when We're shaken to the core with fear, shaking like a leaf when we realize that it's it's not going to be by our own ability that we overcome this. Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And he talks about in chapter 3, much of chapter 3 is about God's power, not his power. Uh, So David in Psalm 18 says the same kind of thing. He says, who is a rock except our God? David's reflecting on how God delivered him from all his troubles and fears and all his enemies. And David says, it wasn't me who was strong. Who is a rock except our God? God equipped me with strength. Any strength that he had was from God. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. He set me secure in the heights. And Habakkuk says, much the same, right? So God is the one who rescues because As David says in Psalm 18, the enemies and everything around him were too mighty for me. That's what it's like to really experience a depth of of, of terrible trouble, is to come to a place where you go, what's happening in my life and all around me, in my nation, it's too mighty for me. It's too big for me. So God assures Habakkuk that though things might go from bad to worse, there's no need to pretend. There's no way you can power through. There's a different kind of joy. And Habakkuk has started to discover what that joy is. And he describes it in chapter 3, verse 18. The result, uh, the, the joy described there is the result not only of God's power and grace, but God's personal presence. And as we'll see, we'll look back at more parts of chapter 3 in a moment. But God is relating to his people through judgment and salvation, through wrath and through mercy. And all of this is tied up to his actual intervention in the world. What stands behind everything uh, Habakkuk comes to see in all of history is a personal, powerful God who loves his people, promises ultimate protection. And that this protection will extend far beyond our temporary troubles. Even though our troubles seem like they're going to go on for a long time. By comparison to God's eternal nature, these are temporary troubles. When Habakkuk chooses to take joy in God in troubling times, he's humbly submitting himself to God. You'll notice in chapter 3, Habakkuk, unlike chapter 1 and 2, he's no longer complaining, questioning, and challenging God's ways in the world. Rather, he's moved beyond that and has accepted and trusted God's will. He believes that in the midst of terribly troubling times, no event, no matter how catastrophic, fails to find a place in God's loving purposes for humanity. He really believes this. Nothing's going to separate him from God's love for him, even though everything around him seems to indicate otherwise. The Christian's uh, settled confidence and conviction is that come what may, God won't abandon. When we are shaking like a leaf in our fears during troubling times, our shaking should send us on a journey to find out what is actually unshakable. And and as Habakkuk has found out, when he looks at himself, he's still filled with fear. When he looks at the world around him, his world is collapsing and shaking around him, and it's about to get worse. So he looks at himself, he looks at the world, and he says, what can I possibly trust? What's really worth trusting? What's strong enough that I could say, I put all my security there. I'm banking that. I take joy in that thing, because that thing alone is worthy of praise. In a time like this, what is your answer? The Christian settled confidence is that come what may, God won't abandon. He has loving purposes for us. And while his ways can seem mysterious and we often misunderstand what he's doing, We trust that even if we don't know the particular details, in general, he has given us a reason to rejoice because nothing can actually separate us from his love and his purposes. We trust what Jesus said to his followers in the New Testament, to his disciples, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And what is this kingdom like? Paul tells us in Romans 14, it's a place of righteousness, peace, and joy. Everything is set right in this kingdom. There are There's peace, not troubles. There's complete joy, not catastrophe or calamity. Hebrews 12 tells us that the kingdom of God is a place where everything that can be shaken will be removed so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Everything that can be shaken, everything that can be broken, crushed, destroyed can result in our fear and insecurity will be removed so that what can not be shaken will remain and be renewed. What is it that cannot be shaken? He says, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's God's good pleasure to give you an unshakable kingdom. And so what does that mean for us? The whole Bible is leading us to this place where a new world order occurs. A new world order, a new kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's nothing like the world that we live in now. It's nothing like what we experience now in the world, but also in ourselves. It means that God has set, if you think about the kingdom of God and the whole rest of the Bible and the New Testament points you to the reality that the kingdom of God is a place where God has set his sights on removing everything that causes us to shake like a leaf every one of our troubles and trials, renewing us and renewing his world so that we are made part of his eternal, unshakable kingdom. It's a realm where temporary troubles are totally removed and instead we experience triumphant glory and victory. Now this does mean that God has to judge everything and everyone, judge everything and everyone that stands in the way and is an agent of this fear rather than an agent of faith and trust in his coming kingdom. He has to remove all things that are fearful and instead uh, make place for us to take on his unshakable kingdom. So why can we stand against fear in troubling times? What can lead us to rejoicing? To rejoice in this context in, in Habakkuk 3, the phrase to rejoice in the presence of God's power and action, it actually in the Old Testament means to sing a song of victory. So what is our Christian joy? It's this celebration of God's promised victory to us, even if we haven't lived through it yet. It's a deep conviction that we actually can already sing a celebration song of victory even though we haven't lived through it or experienced it completely yet. That's what Habakkuk's doing. He says, I'm shaking like a leaf. Also, I rejoice in God, God my strength, God my Savior. He is the one who gives me sure footing. So Habakkuk is singing a victory song. He's willing now to endure troubles and even take joy in God because he trusts God's promises that even in the worst of times, these troubling times are not the end of him. Those who are God's people always have better times ahead, whether we die now in our troubles or whether we live through them, either way. It's God's unshakable kingdom that shapes our vision. See, Habakkuk has now shifted from being someone who is problem focused to someone who is utterly God focused. And this is how he's come to this place where he can sing a song of victory, sing a song of joy, even if he hasn't received it yet in full. How can he do it? Third thing, how can he rejoice in these troubling times? How do we do it? Habakkuk shows us the way all through chapter three. He shows us how he came to the point of saying that even if everything gets worse, I'll rejoice in the Lord, I'll take joy in God my strength. How does he do it? The answer starts back in chapter three, verse two. And it goes on through verse 15. And I won't read all of it to you right now. But what he does is in all of the rest of chapter 3, Habakkuk recounts the salvation of ancient Israel from Egypt. He describes how God brought them out of 430 years of slavery and set them free and took them on a journey to the promised land. And he describes this. Habakkuk describes it in great detail. In verse two, he just says a very quick uh, petition. He prays a prayer again, and he says, "Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In your wrath, remember mercy." And then all the rest of chapter three, from three chapter three verse three to verse fifteen, is him recounting in detail. He's not asking for anything anymore. Now he's remembering. This is a, a psalm. Habakkuk essentially writes in his prayer journal his own psalm of praise and joy. And what he's he's saying is he's recognizing that while in chapters 1 and 2, he was rooted in all the things he felt like God wasn't doing, now his prayer of praise is a recognition for all the great things that God has been doing all throughout history. His prayer becomes this psalm of praise where he recognizes God is able and does actually save his people. And so this may seem strange, but how does Habakkuk root himself in a true and deep sense of joy in his heart during troubling times, so that in all his troubling times, he's overflowing with joy? How does he do it? He goes to history class. Now, that may seem really strange, but what he's saying is, I'm gonna spend a lot of time looking at God's dealings with humanity throughout history. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, it may be that this will be the only thing that holds us together in our days of trouble. As we look out on the world today, is there any cause for rejoicing but this? That whatever may come, if we should ever find ourselves in the fearful state so graphically described by the prophet Habakkuk, the thing to do will be to look back at history. What does Habakkuk do in troubling times? Eventually, he ceases to be so problem-focused and becomes God-focused. He prays, God, repeat or revive in our day the same kind of things you've done in the past. And even if things go from bad to worse, worse, I trust that this is your nature and your character. But how does he do that? How does he do that? Why should you and I trust that even if things go from bad to worse, God is actually going to have mercy on us Actually, gonna lead us to that unshakable kingdom because it doesn't look like it all around us. Habakkuk is saying that he he in verse three it says, God came. That's the start of his whole reflection on history. He looks back at history and he realizes God came. Like at Christmas time, it's what we celebrate: the incarnation. God came into our world, into our troubles in order to take them on. On our behalf, much of Habakkuk 3 paints God as a divine warrior going to battle on behalf of his people. He will move heaven and earth to save his beloved children. He will act, if not now, then in the future. And he has acted in Christ on the cross to set us free from the worst things that could ever happen to us. The result of our sin and the result of Satan's afflictions ultimately is suffering and death. And Jesus went into those things in order to set us free from them. Habakkuk recounts the facts of redemptive history in great detail. And for those of you who think, look, I don't love history. I find it boring. Well, let me encourage you that if you just go to the Bible looking for life lessons or looking for a hopeful message, But you subtract the detailed facts of history from the Bible and you just go looking for lessons or messages of nice hope and God's love and goodness, you'll find that the Bible is never going to comfort you that much at all. Why? Because if that is true and the Bible is just this massive book with a lot of annoying, an annoyingly large amount of detail, You realize the Bible, if it was just a message of some nice, true things like, God is good. God is loving you. God cares for you. God works for your good. Then you could actually just have the Bible in one piece of paper. It'd be really short. But instead, the Bible tells you over and over again about actual events in history. And it does that for a reason. Because one day you'll realize that if you've just been collecting some nice ideas about God, that God's loving and caring and he's really good and he really is going to provide hope for the world, you will wonder if that's actually true when you face incredibly troubling times. Because again, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if God did not actually do the things recorded in the Old Testament for Israel, then the whole Bible may be just a piece of psychology meant to keep me happy. The Bible, however, plainly shows that certain things or that my comfort and consolation lie in facts, the facts that God has done certain things and that they have literally happened. The God in whom I believe is the God who could and did divide the Red Sea and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. In reminding us of these things, Habakkuk is not just comforting himself by playing with ideas. He is speaking of the things that God has actually done. The Christian faith is solidly based on facts, not on ideas. And if the facts recorded in the Bible are not true, then I have no hope and no comfort, for we are saved not by ideas, but by facts, by actual events. And this is what makes all the difference, friends. It's not just history in general that matters, but redemptive history that has become our history. When we read Habakkuk 3, 3 through 15, we see that Habakkuk is remembering all that God has done. But as he progresses through the story, he stops just saying, God saved his people. And he starts saying, God has saved us. Now the events that he is describing happened way before he was born. And yet, he now seems sees himself as part of the story. It's not just history, It's his story, really. He's a part of it. He sees himself as part of the story of God. And this is the major difference, friends, between those who live by faith and rejoice in God in troubling times and those who remain in their fear and despair, only shaking like a leaf you begin to see that the history in the Bible isn't someone else's story or a bunch of detailed facts about somebody else's life, but they're actually it's actually your story too, and it applies to your times as well. God is also at work in the details. Have you ever watched the Sandra Bullock movie, The Blind Side? It's an inspirational movie about a football player based on a true story of a man named Michael Orr who became an offensive tackle in the NFL. And Michael's biological mother struggled with drug addiction. His father was frequently imprisoned and was eventually murdered in prison. And so Michael was homeless for a while. And another family in his city, the Tui family, they took him in and they became he became an adopted member of their family. And eventually he's a really good football player. He gets scholarships to some powerhouse college programs to play football. But the NCAA starts asking questions about the real motivations for why the Tui, the Tui family took Michael in. Was it because they actually just, they love Old Miss, that's where they went, they actually gave money to the school, they were a fairly wealthy family, they supported the school. So maybe they just wanted to bring good, good football players into the program, so they adopted Michael. And so Michael's being questioned about this. It's really upsetting to him. But eventually he has another meeting with the NCAA. And he says, you know, you never asked me why I wanted to go to Ole Miss. And so the, the lady in charge, she asks him, well, why, Michael? Why do you want to go to Old Miss? And he says, because that's where my family goes. That's where my family's always gone. Michael has become a real part of the family. He sees himself in his adopted family's history. So he sees that their story is now his story and he wants to be a part of it. He says, in my family, people go to Old Miss. I wanna go there. Brothers and sisters, is this your response in troubling times? As Habakkuk 3.6 says, the ancient mountains crumbled, the age old hills collapsed, but God marches on forever. When everything around you is falling apart, when troubling times threaten us with fear, when we're shaking like a leaf, when when we feel threatened by our, in our future and we look around at our lives, do you look to the past and say, look at scripture, look at what it shows me? In the Bible, the story says that God marches on forever, even if everything solid around us starts crumbling down. In all your troubles, do you overflow with joy? Do you see that the past reveals God's power at work on our behalf, that he can and does act in history. Because if you do, that really changes the shape of how you live in the present. God comes, and he comes for you. He marches on forever. When God shows up, and you understand how he acts in history, you see that he's only keeping his promises over and over again that he will work everything towards his kingdom purposes. The Christian life is one where we sing a victory song that comes from our future in the present because we've looked to the past and seen that God is faithful over and over and over. He is our only source of true strength. When the world is shaking, he reminds us that he's working everything towards an unshakable kingdom that will never end, that will never fade. And if you are his... If you are his adopted child, you see that that's not just a story told in the Bible. It's your story. And so you learn the history and you want to know it because you realize through it, friends, God is providing a way to heal our our fears, to deal with us as we shake like a leaf when we look at our troubling times. That he doesn't want us to pretend that everything's okay and grin and bear it. He doesn't expect us to draw up our own sense of power so that we work our way to break through with our grit, being gritty people. Yes, we must endure, but we endure looking to the power of God, not to our own. That even in our weakness, as Paul said, he is strong. Christians, um, Good Christians don't deny that things are bad. They say what's really true. Things are actually bad. Everything's not good. He doesn't tell us to power through and just try to solve our own trials and problems through our own perseverance. When we look back in the Gospels, when we look back at the whole story of the Bible, we see that everything was leading up to Jesus defeating our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, suffering, and death. And it wasn't because he pretended that the cross was fine or he powered through it with his toughness. No, he wept. He went to the cross in weakness and shame, but it says that for the joy set before him in Hebrews 12, the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised this shame. It was this joy, the joy of Christ on the cross that he knew he would rise from a grave that brings us our joy. We rest on a historical fact that Jesus walked out of a grave. And so this is our endurance. This is our perseverance. This is how we rejoice and sing a victory song, even in troubling times, because God was willing to lay down his life in Christ in order to adopt us into God's story. The joy set before Jesus was an unshakable kingdom of God's victorious glory and a group of people like us who were trapped in our troubles that he joyfully set free. This is our story As the Apostle Peter says in his letter, and this is where we end, he sings essentially a song of praise, just like Habakkuk. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's alive. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, so that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through your faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. He's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is ready. God's just waiting patiently to reveal it, to invite other people to be part of his story. In this you rejoice, though for now, if for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by these various troubles and trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in the praise, glory and honor, in praise, glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, faith. You live by faith and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You believe in him, you put your trust in him because nothing else in yourself or around you is worthy. Nothing else is unshakable. And you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. As Habakkuk says, I rejoice in my sovereign Lord. He makes me like the, have the feet like a deer, unsure-footed, unshakable, so that I can tread on the heights. When I'm in my greatest troubles, even then I can tread on the heights because God has secured for me future that is unshakable. This is what leads us to rejoicing in troubling times.